Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with me, Christy Brower. I am so excited to be here with you tonight. This is our Friday pop-up. As you know, this is uh, something we're doing now sometimes on Fridays and Saturdays. And we really appreciate the opportunity to just jump in here and there and tell you a few fun things and maybe teach you something that you didn't know or, you know, give you, give you a little snippet maybe of what we do and how we do it. So tonight I want to share with you some serial killer facts that I think are kind of interesting. So Serial killers are notoriously hard to catch, as we know. We talk about them all the time, and we talk about how much the police struggle with catching them and how some of them never get caught or, you know, get caught and then, you know, do something crazy like um, admit to, like, 93 killings like Samuel Little did when we had no idea. You know, that he had killed so many people. So I thought it would be fun to share with you some of some strange ways that serial killers over time have been caught. Because often it is um, on the part of the people in their community that that's how they get caught. That's how um, we all can be of some assistance if we're really paying attention. So let's talk about this guy first. This is, he was known as the Gray Man, um, but he was, his name was actually Albert Fish. This was a long time ago. This was in the 20s, I believe, in New York City. And he screwed up. He wrote a letter to one of his, the family of one of his victims. Her name was Grace Budd. And he, he was a cannibal. He was a seriously bad dude. But he really wanted to brag about what he'd done. So he sent this horrendous letter to Grace Bud's family talking about how much he liked killing her and enjoyed eating her flesh and just horrible stuff like that. Well, what was very funny is that there was a seal on the envelope of the letter that he sent. It was a symbol that belonged to the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. And they traced it back to a janitor who had stolen a bunch of stationery. And when the janitor moved out of his room in this rooming house he was in, he'd left the stationery behind. And guess who moved into that room. You know it, Albert Fish, the gray man, happened to move in there and used that stationery to send that letter to Grace Bud's family. And that's how he was caught. I mean, how funny is that? I just think it's hilarious. Like, not only was it not his stationery, he didn't know where it came from, and it was stolen to begin with. I mean, just the, the odds of that. So funny. But it is that detailed, that tiny stuff that can catch a serial killer like that, right? All right, so that's the gray man. Let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer for a moment, how Jeffrey Dahmer was caught. 
Because again, it's not the way that you would think he was caught. We know who Jeffrey Dahmer is. We just did Dahmer recently. And we did talk about how he was caught. But I think this is interesting. So he had picked up someone named Tracy Edwards. He had offered him $100 to pose for nude photos. This was kind of Dahmer's MO. This is how he got men to come back to his house so that he could kill them. So when he got Tracy Edwards into his house, he put handcuffs on him and he pulled out a big knife. And then he sent, he has, took him to the bedroom. He was watching the exorcist three and he was chanting and rocking back and forth while watching this movie with handcuffed Tracy Edwards. Well, while Dahmer was distracted by the movie, Edwards manages to bash him over the head and get away. He ran to police. He showed them his handcuffs, told them what had happened. They went right to Dahmer's apartment. And you know what they found? Well, they found some unbelievably horrible things. Photos of body parts and dismembered corpses. They also found heads in the refrigerator like all they had to do was walk in to his apartment and he was caught. But he actually was distracted by watching a movie. And that's how they got him. Isn't that crazy? So funny. Okay. I don't know. Funny. Interesting. I find it interesting. Okay. Now let's talk about this guy. So you know who this guy is. This is Son of Sam. And he was a killer in the 70s because there were a lot of serial killers in the 70s. You all know that. But somebody out walking her dog noticed something that uh, got the police wondering about him. So this is, of course, Berkowitz, but he went by Son of Sam. Um, the dog walker was walking through Brooklyn, New York. And this strange man sort of stormed past and he looked like he was holding his arm in a strange way, like he was hiding something in his sleeve. And a few minutes later, she heard gunshots. And when she heard about the murders, there were two people murdered. That was Stacy Muskowitz and Robert uh, Violante. Well, Stacy Muskowitz was killed Robert Violante was partially blinded. So when the dog walker realized that she'd been in the same place as the shooting, and she saw him, son of Sam, kind of running down the street holding his arm weird. So she was convinced that this was son of Sam that she saw. And she called the police. And she also remembered that on that same street, there were there was someone ticketing people parked illegally. So they went and they looked at the parking tickets that were given that day. And guess what? David Berkowitz got a parking ticket while he was committing murder. And that's how he was caught. So the dog walker, noticing something weird was going on and reported it to the police. And then the police checked those records. Isn't that crazy? I love stories like this because it tells us how important it is for us to pay attention to what is going on around us, because you never know when you might see something weird 
and, um, you know, not really necessarily know what it is, but kind of know something's off. I'll tell you a story. This happened to Katie and I, and it turned out to be nothing. And we kind of got laughed at by the cop, but we really were concerned about this. You guys know, we used to own a metaphysical store in downtown Idaho Falls. And there were, um, there were, sorry, I'm doing two things at once. There were a lot of bars around downtown. That's where most of the bars are. And so one day we came in to find a broken glass was stuffed in the flower pot in front of our store. And it looked like it was broken, like it could have been used to stab somebody. You know what I'm saying? And so we were a little worried about it. So we called the police and we said we found something odd and we wanted them to just come look at it because it did look like it could have been used to, you know, kill somebody. Um, the police officer came, he sort of laughed at us. He said, I'm pretty sure it's just a broken glass and left it there. But we both felt like we should say something, you know, that whole idea of you see something, say something really interesting concept when it comes to the way some of these serial killers have been caught, because many of them literally were caught by someone who saw something and said something. So let's see who we have next here. This is BTK. So BTK stood for bind, torture, kill. He was actually Dennis Rader. Um, he killed over about 17 years. He had roughly 10 victims. Of course, we don't are, don't necessarily always know. But he, he had this, you know, some of them just really want to get caught. So he was leaving letters and boxes of uh, evidence for the police in various places. And <laughs> so he decided he wanted to send his letters to the police on floppy disks rather than printing them out. Think about how old this is. We're talking floppy disks. If you're young, you might not even know what the hell we're talking about. But anyway, so he did, wasn't sure if police could catch him through that. So he literally asked the police if they could catch him through that. And he told them to respond in a classified ad in the newspaper. And to be honest about it, you know, because that's what the police are up for, not, you know, catching killers. So <laughs> they ran an ad and said, no, we, we can't catch you through that floppy disk, which was a lie. Even back then, there still was a, you know, an IP address on that computer that they could find. It may not have been called that at the time, but it was something else. Um, <laughs> so... They got this floppy disk for the first time, and that's where it all went bad for BTK. So when they open it, they can immediately say that it was saved by someone named Dennis and that it had been used recently at a nearby church. So um, turns out Dennis Rader, BTK, was a member of his church's congregation I think he was actually like on the church board. So they ran a DNA test on him and it came back as BTK. And of course, you know, the rest is history. But he actually had the gall to say that he was genuinely hurt by the police's trickery for lying to him. As though 
the police were just, you know, going to tell him the truth when they had this opportunity to catch him. So, so interesting, you know, like he sort of, it's almost like he had this friendship going with the police. He thought in his head, clearly not the case at all, but you know, serial killers have a tendency to maybe not have um, a real great grasp on reality. So let's talk about Ted Bundy because Ted Bundy evaded capture for a really long time, if you may or may not know. He he actually was arrested and a suspect several times, got away, was all over the place. He was just super slippery until he, um, so at one point he actually got away from the police. He did all kinds of stuff. But at one point, he got pulled over by the police in a stolen car. I believe it was stolen. Yeah. And the police officer thought he acted a little weird. And they also found what they called a rape kit in the car. Oh, this was in, sorry, this was in Utah. I'm sorry. He's been arrested so many times. So this was in Utah. Um. He, but this is not when he was finally caught. Sorry, I've lost my place. Give me one second. Yes, here we go. Pensacola, Florida. He was driving a stolen car. Yes. Okay. So then he was pulled over by Officer Lee, who at first did not recognize him as Ted Bundy. And at this point, he was all over the news, right? But he kind of fought the officer and acted like, you know, this was more than getting pulled over for a stolen car. And he kind of freaked out. So um, Bundy actually got away from him and he chased him down and put him in cuffs. And once they got him to jail, that's when uh, the police figured out who he was. So it was actually the stolen car. And just it cracked me up a lot that. Um, the officer didn't know who he was like even like that would not happen now. I think with the internet around, I don't think that we would be in a situation where somebody like that, an officer wouldn't know who he was, but he used his instincts really well. You know, the officer did in that moment realize that he was fighting a little too hard for someone who was just in trouble for a stolen car. Interesting. Okay. So let's, Let's move on to our next serial killer. This is uh, Niels Hogel, who was a famous murderer in Germany. He was um, he was a serial killer who murdered between 1999 and 2005. He was a nurse, so he was um, one of those uh, sort of um, what do you call them angel nurses, you know, not angel, but anyway, he would poison people and then he would resuscitate them. So he was constantly saving patients' lives, sometimes not saving patients' lives. He admitted to killing a hundred people. And he said that was because he, it made him feel good when he saved them and everyone thought he was such a hero. Now, in 2005, somebody that worked with him walked in on him 
and saw him poisoning a patient. So they went and they reported him to like the lead, you know, the um, authorities at the hospital, but they waited for two days before they told the police. I'm sure because they didn't want this problem to be in their hospital. And in the meantime, he killed another patient because the thing is he was poisoning them and sometimes they lived and sometimes they didn't. But thank heavens, the police uh, did finally get a hold of him that uh, eventually, you know, after that. And uh, several members of the hospital staff were also in big trouble over this because they knew who he was and they knew what he was doing. And they waited to tell anybody. Crazy, right? Totally crazy. Okay couple more. Let's talk about the Golden State Killer. So the Golden State Killer, as we know it, as we know him, you know, he has escaped the law, law enforcement for a really, really, really long time. And probably one of the most famous and most notorious serial killers of all time. He committed his crimes back in the 70s and 80s. And this was, of course, before we had a lot of the the um, technology that we have now. So this is Joseph James D'Angelo. Uh, he was finally arrested at 72 years old. It turns out he's an ex-cop. But the way that he was caught was through genealogy DNA. We've talked about this here on the show before, that they ran his DNA through a genealogy site. Um, Geomatch or GD match. I'm not sure. There's there's a bunch of them. And they found a partial match. So they found someone related to him. So they just sort of followed the breadcrumbs along until they got to him. And they managed to, the police officers managed to find some of his DNA in his trash and were able to match it. And then he was arrested. So such a crazy way to get a a serial killer. Now that's happening more and more. We're going to see more of that technology has gotten way better, but I think it's very interesting to think that even cases that old can be solved. Thanks to genealogical DNA. Okay. Last one. And we've told this story before here on the show, but I want to talk about it again because I love this. This is a neighborhood who took, took down this serial killer. This is the Night Stalker. And he, uh, Richard Ramirez, and he uh, did um, his murders between 1984 and 1985 in Los Angeles. Now, the funny thing about him is that they initially knew who he was thanks to a 13-year-old kid named James Romero. So this kid saw him in his backyard and he, because Ramirez a lot of times broke into people's houses and he, you know, part of what he did was burglary and the kids saw him. He knew he'd been spotted. So he hurried and drove away. He was driving an orange Toyota. The boy described him to the police. And a few days later, the police found that car 
that orange Toyota and lifted a fingerprint. And they finally had a name, which was Richard Ramirez. So his the picture of him, the drawing of him, his name was all over the news in L.A. Well, here's the hilarious, I don't know, hilarious um, irony of this. He was out of town. He stopped his serial killing for a moment to go to Arizona to visit his brother. So he had not heard any of this when he got into town. He went into a little store and was very shocked to see his face in the newspaper. Some of the people in the store recognized him and, you know, were yelling murder or murder at him. He freaked out and tried escaping. He actually tried to carjack two or three different cars unsuccessfully, but he ends up in this neighborhood. The police are chasing him. He ends up in this neighborhood, tries to carjack a car, and some neighbors in the community run him down because they have had enough of this carjacking bullshit in their community. They don't know who he is. They just think he's a carjacker. So they surround him. They beat the crap out of him. The police show up and then they find out they have actually captured the Night Stalker, uh, Richard Ramirez. And it was pretty great. You know, this all thanks to a 13 year old boy who told the police what he saw and some neighbors who stepped in and said, uh, you're not going to be carjacking in our neighborhood anymore. So I love these stories because so many of them have a connection to how we can be of help. And that is to see if you see something, say something. Don't step back and wait and don't, you know, not speak up. Like we were kind of embarrassed over the broken glass thing, but it was like, you know, what if it, what if there'd been somebody killed with something like that that night and we didn't know about it? So I think, um, I think it's really, really important that if you see something, say something. Thank you all for joining me, those of you that are live and those of you that are listening after the fact. This is a true crime paranormal, true crime pop-up. We will be back, of course, with probably another pop-up over the weekend and then our regular shows next week. So thanks for listening. And you know it. I'm Christy Brower with True Crime Paranormal. Have a great night. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.